can you hear me? I, I think I was muted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll do the, the world we got this intro bit. Yeah. When we started this podcast, I, I did think the world had got it, but, you know, now I'm not so sure. <laughs> All right, let's go. From Global Affairs at King's College London, this is the world we got this podcast, returning for a new season. We're relaunching with a new format, still discussing the big global issues, but with a few changes. From now on, we won't just be looking at pandemics and COVID-19, but instead we'll explore a whole range of challenges. Each week, we're going to speak to the experts here in the UK and around the world to help us understand the big issues, from how climate change is impacting democracy in India to how First Nations peoples in Australia have responded to COVID-19, from global health to inequality, from rising tensions with China to deforestation in the Amazon. We'll be bringing you a truly diverse set of perspectives and voices on the issues that matter. So join us as we explore the big global challenges with the experts taking them on in World We Got This. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. So after a couple of months, uh, we're back with a slightly changed format. Uh, We wanted to make sure each week we could bring you one episode every Monday. But in order to do that, we've made things a little simpler. So each week we're going to be speaking to one guest about one issue. Our discussion will often focus on a piece of writing or research. And we'll be sharing this in the show notes, which you'll be able to access via the episode information or in the Global Affairs website. In addition, as we've mentioned in today's intro, we're also going to be discussing a whole variety of issues, not just COVID-19. In fact, global affairs here at King's is all about trying to understand big global challenges from different perspectives. And that's why we're going to have guests from not just here in the UK, but around the world to discuss the issues that matter. So our first episode, and we're kicking off with an issue which has been in the news throughout the summer, and that's wildfires. We're joined by Professor Martin Muster to discuss his work measuring and understanding wildfires. As you'll hear, Martin was keen to stress the importance of understanding wildfires, and in particular why tropical wildfires pose such a critical threat. One last thing before we go to today's episode, please do rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether that's on SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify, it will help us reach more people. And you can also register for our newsletter, which will give you the latest information about the podcast, as well as events at Global Affairs and our research. So on to today's episode. It's a real pleasure um, today in our first episode to have Professor Martin Muster from the Department of Geography here at King's College London. Martin, thank you for joining us on the podcast. No problem at all. I guess I I wanted to kick off uh, today. by just talking a little bit about what you and your team do. You're a professor of Earth Observation Science, and as we're going to come on to, your work focuses on wildfires. Can you tell us a little bit about, as I say, what you and your team do here at King's? Okay, so Earth Observation Science, what that is really about is using something called remote sensing, which is essentially measurement of light at different wavelengths to study Earth's environment. So we do that using instruments uh, maybe on the ground, sometimes on aircraft, but most commonly on satellites. So everyone's seen Google Earth 
Um, you know, that's satellite remote sensing, essentially, but those are just sort of static pictures, um, as we might see with our own eyes. But you can um, sense light in many, many different wavelengths. And from those measurements, you can infer many things about the Earth. Um, uh, you know, for example, sea surface temperature, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the forest cover in a particular place, etc. And this is the sort of thing that we work on. When we were discussing recording this podcast, obviously the first in the in the new season, and one of the reasons we we thought it'd be great to have you on is because there's been the wildfires uh, in California. They've been on the news. They've been in the papers. So so prevalent. But one of the things that that you pointed out is the focus on places like California and Australia belies a kind of uh, the way in which we see this is often through these kind of iconic places, but that actually it perhaps is the tropics that we should discuss and in particular the ways in which the tropics are uniquely affected and the effect they have on the planet. Yeah, so obviously the media will focus on perhaps unusual events or events that are really directly affecting you know humans in, in areas where there's uh, lots of uh, public attention. But in fact, most fires worldwide are in the tropics. As you say, about 70% of the burned area annually is in Africa. So, uh, and, and you rarely hear anything about that in the media. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very important place, the tropics, for the study of fires and for fire as a part of the earth system. And also fire isn't all bad. It's a natural process. Almost all vegetated environments on earth have fire within them to some extent. Some of them, like the boreal forests of Canada, for example, require fire for the ecosystem to function. So, um, it's a complex topic, but also one that is, you know, has, um, positive benefit on the environment as well as a negative one. And your work's often focused on Indonesia, Southeast Asia, some of the some of the rainforests there. What are the kind of like unique aspects of the wildfires that we see there? What 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 drives them traditionally and I guess what's driving perhaps an increase in wildfires in those areas? If we take tropical forest environments for example, they're typically quite moist in their natural state and relatively fire retardant. So where we see fires in tropical forests, particularly extensive fire, that's usually associated with unnatural processes like land clearance and, and people essentially using fire to modify the tropical forest in some way. That's been done for millennia for shifting cultivation, but nowadays it's done on industrial scales for things like soybean production and um, cattle ranching, etc. in the Amazon. And uh, because it's very much controlled by human activity, it can show massive variations between uh, years depending on you know, what the policies are at the time and what the enforcement of those policies are. So, for example, the Brazilian government had a very good run of a decade or so, uh, largely reducing tropical deforestation fires in, in the Amazon through better policies and enforcement of those policies, satellite monitoring, all sorts of things. But in the last year or two, you know, that's changed a little bit. And that's why we've seen this increase in, uh, in fire, um, not to the levels it was, you know, a decade ago or so, but compared to what it has been in the last few years before that. In terms of thinking about more broadly about climate change and, and the ways in which the rainforests in particular play a key role in sustaining our environment and our ecosystems, one of the things you looked at in your research is peat bogs or, or rainforest wetlands. You probably <laughs> give the give the, uh, the actual term as opposed to, to, to my tropical language. Tropical peatlands. Yeah. Tro tropical peatlands, that's it, uh, which is... My only recognition of Pete is from Ireland and my grandma putting it on the fire, but I don't think it might be quite similar. But can you tell us a little bit about the unique threat that they pose, but also, you know, how that occurs and, and what, what role that plays in tropical yeah. fires? 
Yeah, so you mentioned about putting peat on the fire in Ireland as a fuel. So that immediately tells you that peat actually contains enough carbon to actually burn, you know, is an alternative to coal, etc. And that kind of underlies some of the problems we see in these tropical peatlands when they're degraded. Essentially, tropical peatlands are prevalent in different parts of the tropics, but, but they are very prevalent in Southeast Asia, for example. And um, in parts of Indonesia, over decades, as a result of government policies in the 1990s, like the transmigration policy and this mega rice project, for example, huge areas of land on islands like Kalimantan and also in Sumatra were, were cleared of forest and uh, also for industry like palm oil plantations and such like. And um, as well as being cleared of forests, the peatlands were drained. So essentially became much drier uh, because the water is, is being taken out. This was all kind of to support agriculture, et cetera, large scale industrial land clearance. And um, what's happened is that uh, these formerly very moist environments are now much, much drier. And during periods of low rainfall and even droughts that are associated in Southeast Asia with El Nino, for example, the top layer of this peak can become very dry and can be ignited by fires that just exist for other purposes in that landscape. You know, people use fire for various things and it, it acts like a giant fire lighter. Essentially, you, the soil itself can burn. So you can imagine in a normal vegetation fire, essentially you light a vegetation at a particular spot. It burns for a little bit and then the fire has to spread across the landscape to access more vegetation to keep going. But in these peat fires, as well as spreading like that horizontally, they can also just spread down into the peat, which can be meters thick. So uh, the amount of material being consumed per square meter bird is huge because you're not just consuming stuff on the surface, you're going down into the ground. And also, they typically are not flaming fires, they're, they're mainly smoldering fires. And if you've ever seen a dirty sort of bonfire in somebody's back garden, a relatively small one can produce a large amount of particulate-laden smoke, right? So, so unlike a flaming fire where the smoke is, you know, mo- mostly not full of particles so much, and these particles are probably the most health-impacting component, um, and also greatly affect visibility, etc. So, these smouldering peat fires really are optimally set up to affect air quality very badly. They produce huge amounts of particulate-laden smoke um, and, and can do so for months. And during El Nino periods, for example, in Southeast Asia, for example, in 1997, there was a huge El Nino that, that resulted in this environmental disaster again in 2015. And most recently in 2019, there was a slightly smaller megafire event there as well. In 2015, for example, the World Bank estimated that losses to Indonesia were something like 15 or 16 billion dollars from things like agriculture, timber, impediments to education, transport, tourism, etc. And uh, the air quality was, you know, probably the worst on the planet uh, at that time. And we actually went there and, and measured the air quality both near to the fires and um, also in, in cities as well. And uh, this smoke, because it's produced so widely and for such a long time, you know, can spread across even outside of that country to affect other neighboring countries as well. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to, a, I think, a radio interview you conducted. You said that the measurements, were even in the hotel, were were not what would be considered safe in terms of pollution levels. No, um, our hotel room at that time in 2015, I think the levels of particulate matter, what so-called PM 2.5, which are these fine particles that you can sort of breathe in and that are considered uh, damaging to health, they were hundreds of micrograms per meter cubed even inside the hotel. Um, and, uh, you know, we taped up all the windows and had, you know, various air filtration devices to get all this 
stuff out of the air where you're breathing in a hotel room and, and wore masks, et cetera, as is everybody these days. But outside, you know, levels could even reach a, a greater than a thousand micrograms per meter cubed. Whereas in London, you know, the, 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 these sort of fine particles are coming out of diesel exhausts and such like. And you might have 30 micrograms per meter cubed on a not a very good day, for example. So, so these are huge levels that are way above what is even considered, you know, extremely hazardous. Um, some of the highest levels probably seen in, in any kind of air quality event worldwide. And you mentioned there that, that, that there was a hit to the uh, Indonesian economy and, um, uh, and obviously a cost to health, which again, I mean, is, is, a, is a loss to, to individuals and most importantly, but it, it also has knock-on effects in terms of the economy as we've seen with COVID-19. In places like Indonesia, which I know you've, you've been to many times, is there a kind of growing recognition that the short-term trade-offs of gaining more production are not worth the long-term risks? Is, is that conversation happening increasingly? Or Yes, absolutely. The fires now are in part a legacy of you know, land use change over you know, in past decades. So the government now is, is not at all you know, causing this um, and indeed is, is working to try to prevent it. So there are activities going on to try to understand how landscapes can be restored and make them less flammable, for example, by re-wetting them and other things. But, you know, these are very large problems, very large areas and cost lots of money and takes time. So it's not going to happen overnight. But, yeah, places like Indonesia are, are well aware of, of the problem and are trying to address it in various different ways. So, Martin, you, you mentioned that your group use satellites. For the first time, are we actually understanding how much and where fires are burning? Yeah, so we're very much in the satellite era now. There's huge numbers of satellite programs. All sorts of different nations have flown very advanced technology in space that typically looking at fire is not its main application. It's developed for weather forecasting or for looking at aspects of climate change, for example. But you can often use these instruments to provide information on landscape fires around the planet. And when we process these data in different ways, we can map burned area, for example, or we can see where fires are occurring through looking at the rates of heat they emit as they're actually burning as the satellite images the Earth, we can essentially quantify the amount of fire there is, where it is, and what's burning to some extent. And what people have found out now is that, you know, it's ubiquitous across the planet, and we have these consistent measurements globally, which we didn't have before. And, um, you know, it shows that if you add all the burned area together that occurs every year, it's equivalent of roughly the size of India burning every year. But obviously, it's spread out and there's lots of interannual variability, you know, which is driven by, to some extent, climate anomalies and some, so some extent, human activity variations. We've got now a, at least a couple of decades and, and typically a bit more than that of, of data. So we can see trends and we can see interannual variability. And one of the things we're trying to do is, is separate this, you know, are fire regimes changing, for example, in different places, you know, and why? Your research, of course, looks at uh, fires that are happening in perhaps unnatural environments uh, and, and destroying ecosystems. But, but it also looks at fires that are happening in places that it naturally occurs. And, and one of those places is savannah. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so savanna environments are typically, you know, mixed grass, woodland ecosystems, but where the trees are quite spaced out. So it's not, it's not like a forest. About 70% of all area burned globally on, a, on an average basis is in the African savanna. So you can see Africa is really the, the fire continent on the planet and fire is absolutely prevalent there. 
but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Fire is often promoted as a bad thing in California and it's affecting livelihoods and homes. But in Africa, it's prevalent. And in fact, it helps keep the savannah environment as it is. We work with the uh, South African National Parks team in Kruger National Park in South Africa. And there there's a very long term fire experiment that's been going on for more than 50 years where they essentially burn plots of land in the park. They're about seven hectares each at different frequencies. And originally, this was partly done to understand what frequency of fire had to occur to keep the savannah open. And uh, what you can see is when you stand next to these plots is that the ones that are burned very frequently, like every year or two, they look like what you would imagine the open savannah environment looks like, you know, lots of grassland and, 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 and the occasional tree. And if you look at the plot that has never been burned, where fire has been excluded, you basically looks like a forest. So the fire being very prevalent in the African savannah is essentially keeping that landscape open. And, and that you know, is probably important for many of the animals and, and the plants and stuff that, that live there. The ecosystem is adapted to have fire within it. Um, and indeed, in Kruger Park, they even apply fire over large parts of the landscape if naturally it hasn't burned during a particular year. They have a program where they can actually apply fire to large areas to keep that going. So it's not all bad fire. It's a natural part of ecosystems. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, often when you know modified by humans or comes into contact with humans is when the problems start, perhaps. So you mentioned there, so we've obviously spoken about the savannah uh, and the ways in which that burns. Is it actually the case that, that we are seeing an increase in fires or are we just seeing them in places we didn't quite expect and actually in some places where we should expect them, we're not having the fires that we once did? Well, now we've got these long-term satellite records, we can essentially look at trends and also interannual variability in different parts of the planet and, and try to understand more what is going on with fire. And ultimately, one of the aims is actually to build model representations of that that can go into things like global climate models that could better understand how fire regimes might change into the future and how that might interact with climate, for example. But in some places, we see increases in fire and some places decreases. So, for example, in the savannas of Northern Hemisphere Africa, data coming from different types of satellite instruments all seem to show that over a recent decade or two, there's been a kind of long-term decline in burning there. It's not huge, but it does seem to be a trend. I said that savannah is a kind of fire-prone environment. So why might this be? Well, you know, people are still looking at this. But one idea is that more land is being used for agriculture, and that may be less fire-prone. Burning may occur there in these smaller fires, which are harder to detect from satellites, for example. And also the landscape may be broken up, so you don't get such large fires in the first place. You know, it has barriers to their spread. So all these different reasons might be responsible uh, there may be other reasons as well for this potential decline in fire in, in Northern Hemisphere Africa. And of course, in other areas, we might see an increase in fire, but that may be due to other reasons. So finally, Martin, I mean, the podcast is Well, We Got This, and we like to end on a We Got This element. We've spoken a lot about wildfires all around the world. And I mean, what, what would you say that is a, is a positive that people can take away from this research uh, and the work that, that, that people are doing around the world on, on wildfires? I guess, you know, it's a complex topic and, and fires are a natural part of ecosystems. But obviously, in some areas, they are largely unwanted or that at least they have um, perceived to have negative effects. So one of the positive things is that fire activity in many places, particularly in the tropics, is, is driven by human activity. It's humans that are lighting fires. And if you could look at Brazil, for example, not in the last couple of years, but before that, the government 
managed to harness technology like satellites, detections of fires, along with policies of fire prevention and enforcement of those policies to really reduce the amount of fire in, for example, the Brazilian Amazon that compared to what it was previously. So that is a, a demonstration that, you know, if you've got the will to change fire regimes and the capability to do that, you can actually have a, a big effect and, you know, produce an outcome that is, that is positive for ecosystems and, and for also even for human health in terms of air quality impact. So it's possible in, in relatively short amount of time to change some of these more damaging consequences of fires uh, if the will is there. You've been listening to the World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.